Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Devendra Hardwar, Jeff Kanata, and Christy Puchko. Welcome to the show, everyone. What we're going to do here today is talk about some what we've been watching. We have some discussion of the Oscars for you, and then we're going to move on into an in-depth review. This week, we'll be talking about Red Sparrow, the new Francis Lawrence movie uh, that he made with Jennifer Lawrence. You can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Uh, and did you guys watch the Oscars live last night? It was kind of a lengthy ceremony. Three three hours and 45 minutes. Wait, you're yeah. telling me the Oscar ceremony was long? I know. It is shocking. It is shocking. And kind of boring. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll I talk- watched it at a bar, which I think was like a good way because I was like, I can only half pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> and then I, I, I started watching it. I literally fell asleep um, for like 30 minutes and then I woke up and they'd only given away like two other awards during that <laughs> can, I, um, can I tell you? Happening. Can I tell you a true story? <laughs> yes. uh, we, uh, we record the, uh, my DLC podcast, my, my video game podcast, Sunday nights, and uh, we're unable to move it around the Oscars. So, uh, I, I started recording the podcast after they gave out best sound editing. And when I finished the podcast, I was still able to watch like four more awards. <laughs> and I do a two hour podcast. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it was that, pretty lengthy. That, that, it was pretty lengthy. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll talk more about the results and the ceremony itself in a little bit. But uh, before we even get to what we've been watching, uh, last week on the show, we announced uh, a contest for a Coco Blu-ray uh, that we wanted to give to two people. The the Blu-ray for Coco, uh, which I think is out uh, available right now. Uh, let me just confirm that. But uh, yeah, Disney's Coco was on was released on Blu-ray last week, so you can get a copy of that right now if you want. It's a beautiful film, a great Blu-ray, uh, and we asked for people's favorite musical moments. The two people who won are Nick W. and Chris B. Nick W. from uh, Los Angeles, California, and Chris B. from Rancho Rancho Santa Margarita, California. Uh, And I'll just read their entries here. Nick W. writes in, I I couldn't get it down to one favorite musical moment in film, so here are three rapid fire. Number one, stuck in the middle with you, Reservoir Dogs. I saw this movie way too young. The scene split my brain in two. I didn't know movies could do that and be so insane. Also, I'm pretty sure I swore you actually saw Mr. Blonde hack off the cop's ear when you don't at all in the movie. That's insane. Number two, Happy Birthday Jesus, uh, or Dear Jesus, Full Metal Jacket. Does Lee Ermey leading his squad in a Happy Birthday to Jesus count as a musical moment? I'm going to say hell yes it does. As anyone who's seen the movie knows, it's bonkers. Really more like two movies stapled together that happen to have the same characters. But God, those early scenes are hilarious and unsettling. Number three, You Make My Dreams Come True from 500 Days of Summer. This movie's still one of my favorites, and it has so many great scenes that take an emotional feeling and translate it to a visual scene. The whole world turning into your own personal music video after you get with that special someone is genius. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, or as I like to call him, Jogo Lev, crushes the scene. It's a goddamn joy to watch. <laughs> Uh, so that that entry comes from Nick W. from Los Angeles. Nick, thanks for entering. Uh, you win a Coco Blu-ray. Uh, this email comes in from Chris B., who writes in, I've chosen Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Yondu's arrow jailbreak set to, the, uh, to Jay and the Americans come a little bit closer. 
a masterfully directed scene that pairs beautifully with the mariachi horns. It's a scene that totally captures the essence of its three heroes, pushes the plot forward, and tells its story in a visually exciting style that continues to evolve as the scene progresses. James Gunn is right up there with Edgar Wright, Martin Scorsese, and Quentin Tarantino with his ability to create a scene based on music. I know there are more pedigreed films like Scorsese's use of Layla in Goodfellas, but this scene just brings joy to my heart in the same way that Coco's score made me cry like a two-year-old. That comes from Crispy. Great entries, guys. Uh, and I, I love reading these entries because, you know, it's a good entry, in my opinion, when it makes me want to revisit the movie and that scene. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, so really appreciate those entries. Over 170 people entered this contest. Uh, oh, wow. So, yeah, a lot of entries and two won. How many of them said the gamer dance number? <laughs> you know, I don't know, <laughs> so if I, I don't know if I saw that one, Christy. I, I feel like just... more people should because that is a good scene. Yeah. 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 That's that's on you guys. If you had said it, I bet you would have won. Just the uh, Neville Dean Taylor movie Gamer that was released in 2009. <laughs> oh, actually, it's not Neville Dean Taylor. It's just Brian Taylor, I think, right? Um, but uh, I'm just curious how often I can bring that up into the episode. Yeah, no, I think you should try. You should try. Uh, actually, it is Neville Dean Taylor, and yeah, you should yeah. try and incorporate it as much as possible. Um, good, good. Because that, I mean, that movie which stars Gerard Butler as Cable does not get enough love. Uh, anyway, I mean, th- the movie as a whole, uh, that scene's outstanding. It's fine. <laughs> Sorry. Um, just had to slip it in there again, didn't you? Christine? I did. I just um, wanted <laughs> one more moment for Michael C. Hall's dance number. Sorry, go ahead. So I know a lot of you were thinking to yourselves, well, I didn't want to submit a recording of myself shouting everyone a couple weeks ago. I didn't want to write about Coco and music because I hate joy. Um, so, but you, you still wanted to win a Blu-ray. You know, you still wanted to to win a Blu-ray, and uh, guess what? We got another contest for you guys this week. Um, so this week we are giving away a uh, a two pack of Blu-rays of I Tanya and Get Out, uh, wow. two awesome movies, uh, many many Oscar nominations for both these movies, and uh, yeah, this is a good Blu-ray double pack. All you got to do is email. Slash it's kind of odd that it's odd that they're selling those as a two pack. Uh, uh, don't yeah. <laughs> I don't think they're sold as a two pack. <laughs> it's just weird just... that you would walk into a store and see uh, I Tonya get out two pack for sale. But we are selling. We are uh, giving those away. So I can only assume that's how they're packaged. I by don't. This... <laughs> I don't think that's how they're packaged. Also, they no? they don't have that much to do with each other <laughs> thematically, other than that they're both nominated for Oscars. Um, they're both about how white people can be terrible. Mm, mm, <laughs> nicely done. <laughs> nicely done. All you got to do to enter this contest: email slashfilmcast at gmail dot com. Uh, in the subject line, write Tanya contest. In the subject line, write Tanya contest. A lot of people were disqualified automatically because they did not follow this simple instruction of what to do. Um, but yeah, right. Tanya contest, T O N Y A contest, um, uh, and email us by Friday, March 9th, eleven fifty nine p.m. Pacific time. Put in the email body your uh, uh, address, U.S. only, no PO boxes, and in the uh, rest of the email, tell us about your favorite celebrity sighting. Uh, some people like uh, Tanya Harding is kind of a weird celebrity sighting. I think is what. Uh, Christy had suggested sure. before the show. I agree with that sentiment. And so, have you ever seen a celebrity? What was your weirdest celebrity sighting? Tell the story of that. And if you've never seen a celebrity, uh, then tell us the story of the, the most exciting person that you've ever seen in your life, even if they're not a celebrity. So maybe they're, I don't know, 
someone that you like or something like that. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Everyone's included. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, again, to win a two-pack of Blu-rays for I, Tanya, and Get Out, email slashfilmcast at gmail.com. In the subject line, put Tanya Contest. Uh, email us by Friday, March 9th, 11.59 p.m. Pacific, uh, with your address, U.S. only, no P.O. boxes, and let us know your favorite celebrity sighting. Uh, I think this will be the last... A, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Do you have a, a, a celebrity sighting, a fun celebrity sighting, any of you guys? One time when I was in L.A., I saw Jeff Kanata. That was really exciting. Oh, stop. <laughs> stop. I got really um, psyched about that. When I first moved to the city, I was very excited because, and I'm going to forget his name now, it's terrible, but I, uh, I was excited because I saw the villain from Hackers. <laughs> and wow. I was so excited and I grabbed my... That is my, such a New York thing. Yeah. Right. But here's the thing. Yeah. I grabbed my I grabbed my husband, well, at the time my boyfriend, and I grabbed his sleeve and I'm like, oh my God, look, it's the guy from Hackers. It's Plague. It's Plague from Hackers. And <laughs> like now he's an Oscar winner and I can't think of his name. That's terrible. Anyway, um, but he, uh, my and my boyfriend said, where? And I said, right next to, and I was going to describe the tall, handsome man next to him and it was Kevin Klein. Mm-hmm. And yep. I was yep. so caught off guard that my response was, oh my God, that's Kevin. Oh like, I screamed it. I said, "Oh my god, that's Kevin Klein!" And my, like, my boyfriend Stevens. like grabbed me and like pulled me. Fisher Stevens, yes. Yeah. Fisher Stevens was talking to Kevin Klein. I was excited about Fisher Stevens, but then saw Kevin Klein yeah. and lost my mind. I've and, also uh, seen Kevin Klein in the wild. Uh, yeah, I was trying to get into. He's he's just like a cool dude. Like that guy must had to stand and be very cool in New York. Uh, I was trying to get into Bob's Burgers live thing. And uh, my tickets didn't work out. I'm still annoyed about that. But I walked around to the back, and he's just like hanging there by the back door. I'm like, oh, this is cool. This is actually worth the trip just to come and sit and wait for a bit by Kevin Klein. Yes. Uh, my best, uh, my favorite New York story, though, is um, Leonard Nimoy. I went to see the, uh, was it the the Sphinx exhibit that was at the... Uh, oh, right, the, right. Yeah, it was at the Sugar Factory, the old uh, Diamond Sugar Factory, I believe. And... Uh, he was there with his wife and just seeing him walk around and enjoying the art was strangely moving. And then, um, that was just a couple weeks before he passed away. So that was a great moment. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you the most recent celebrity sighting I had was I got to go to the magic castle down in Los Angeles with, uh, Peter Serretta, editor in chief of slash film.com. And, uh, I took my fiance down there and we were hanging out with Peter and, uh, we're hanging at the bar. We'd seen a couple of magic shows. It was a great time. And then she turns to me. She says, hey, uh, Jack Black is right behind you. Uh, <laughs> and he was right behind me, and it was, uh, that was pretty awesome. That's um, cool. Did you turn around? I did turn around. I, I, okay. I, I did turn around. I saw him, and you know, I, didn't, I didn't go up and say hi to him. I think, let me tell you about the, uh, the let's say, most embarrassing for me celebrity encounter <laughs> I ever had was, I actually think you might have been there, Devendra. Um, we were at Comic-Con, right? And uh, we were in one of these huge convention halls, and Phil Lamar walks in. No, that was the hotel. Oh, is that the hotel? Yeah, sure. It was like the hotel, like a lobby area. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Phil Lamar walks in, and Phil Lamar, for those who don't know, he used to be on Mad TV, then he, he became a very uh, well-regarded voice actor on like Futurama uh, and other, many other shows. So I'm a big fan of Phil Lamar. And I kind of... Like, this is like... Eight years ago, nine years ago, right? So, like, at this point in time, you know, uh, I've interviewed, uh, uh, I've interviewed many people, and so like the idea of seeing someone famous is no longer extremely novel to me. But at the time, it was mind blowing. So when I saw Phil Lamar, I said, 
oh my gosh, Phil Lamar? And I said it like really loudly like that. And he he said, yeah, hey, man. And he looked extremely frightened uh, yeah. that I, A, knew who he was, <laughs> and B, was willing to express it so loudly. Yeah. The, uh, uh, like, the, full, the full scope of the story, by the way, is he was called... I think to pick up the phone somewhere like somebody had a, somebody was calling him. So he's walking towards like a house phone and Dave was like, Phil Lamar. And then he turned around and then he just walked away from the phone. He just he got out of there like as quickly yeah. as possible. Cause Did he's not like, need to answer that call. It turns yeah. out. Yeah. He's like, I do not want to, I do not want to, you know, uh, stay in this room. It'd be re- like, I don't, I don't want you to read about me in the newspaper tomorrow, basically. <laughs> um, so Phil Lamar, if you're listening to this episode, sorry about that. I didn't mean to yeah. scare you. It's the embarrassing ones that are the best, I think, or the ones like you never fully see. I was in a hotel, and uh, this was like doing some interview stuff, so it's not super like. It, of course, I saw this person there, but uh, I heard the uh, the notorious uh, what's his face? Big. What's his, no, no, not Big. Uh, super bad guy. Oh, Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. No, not Michael Jonah Sarah? Hill. Michael Sarah. We're going through all of them. Oh, Seth Rogen. There we Seth go. Rogen. Seth Rogen. Yeah. That guy. Uh, but I heard the <laughs> laugh. I heard the <laughs> behind me, like right behind me, and his breath was like c- against my neck. I didn't turn around. I was just like, "Oh, that's cool." I'm in the elevator with uh, Seth Rogen right now. That's that's kind of funny. Yeah. I didn't turn around. All I have is the laugh of that experience. <laughs> you just I was it. in an elevator yeah. with Sigourney Weaver once unexpectedly, and I did not know what to do with myself. Oh yeah, yeah. she is so. She is a giantess. Mm-hmm. I'm also like the size of a hobbit for those that don't know. But um, she was so tall and just genuinely like statuesque that I basically just kind of cowered in a corner and just stared at her. Like she probably gets that a lot, though. I yeah. Think. Yeah. I'm sure. I think she's just that is that is being Sigourney Weaver. I went to New Year's Eve party at Seth Rogen's house one year. Nice. Nice. Anyway, nice. anyway. there was, what some, was that like, you know, there, there were some great uh, tweets. Humble brag. <laughs> we're like i was in an elevator with a famous person just like no big deal but uh i don't know if you guys know i live in los angeles it's it's yeah. more it's it's more strange the days i don't see a famous person you know what i mean it's true it's true so uh your story actually reminds me of one of my favorite tweets last night uh from the oscars from uh chris klimek uh did you guys uh, mm-hmm. see jodie foster went on stage with jennifer lawrence uh, to present an Oscar at one point in the evening. Uh, oh, yeah. And Chris Klimek, a uh, very great writer and generally good person, tweeted out, human Jodie Foster and Navi Jennifer Lawrence present best actress at the Oscars. <laughs> it's uh, no one got that joke because it's yeah. not culturally relevant, right, Dave? <laughs> well, it's because Jennifer Lawrence looks massive compared – she looks like, you know – Two feet taller than Jenny no. Jody my Foster. point is, everybody got that joke because of the cultural mm-hmm. relevance of the reference. No, I, I understood the point you're making. I, right. <laughs> I was just, I, yeah. I mean, I was just saying maybe the cultural relevance of Avatar has been understated, Jeffrey. Yeah, you know, wow. <laughs> it all it, the wheel turns, however slowly. That's right. The pendulum it swings back. It bends <laughs> back towards to the old Canada. It bends towards justice. Is what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I just was reminded of that when you talked about Sigourney Weaver just now, Chrissy. All right, guys. Yeah, it's and exactly no- what it looks like. It's yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. It was uh, a moment that my wife and I turned to each other and went, "Who selected this pairing?" Because <laughs> it is comically disproportionate, and uh, usually they well, have because, the good like, sense. I think you know, the they, two they of put, them. They put Army Hammer and Gal Gadot mm. together, you know, like yeah. Yeah. very tall people. It makes very right. good sense, you know, yeah. good sense to do that. And then it's like, oh, you know what? Let's just throw Jodie Foster out there on crutches. <laughs> 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 so yeah. funny. 
Well, it's like one of those things where I think it's someone did the math online and they were like, there's five inches of difference between the two of them if they were both flat footed. But of course, Jody is like at a disadvantage because she's wearing clutch crutches. So not only is she wearing flats, but she's probably slightly bent over to accommodate the crutches. And then you've got Jennifer Lawrence, who is five, eight, and then probably wearing at least four inch heels. Right. So it becomes this. Yeah. Also, I think, Jeff, uh, my understanding was that like Jodie Foster was kind of one of Jennifer Lawrence's heroes, you know, so maybe. Right. That's why no, I get it. Way, it yeah. just mm-hmm. was it. It as we've mentioned, it provided. And she it. should have carried her out in a palatine, like a real <laughs> fangirl. Indeed, indeed, get it together. Yeah, like uh, yes. chicken fights. You know, you could have had her on the shoulders <laughs> like chicken fights. Yeah. All right, guys. <laughs> enough, <laughs> enough of the celebrity sightings. Let's get to what we've been watching. Uh, I want to talk about a couple things. First of all, uh, on Jeff Kanata's recommendation, we went to go see Game Night this week. And yeah, uh, this is directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, written by Mark Perez. And this movie is awesome. I mean, mm-hmm. it is hilarious and uh, clever and meta. Like, it, it is very uh, – throws in a lot of Easter eggs for people who watch a ton of movies like this, which is like all of us here on the podcast. Uh, and especially if you if you play games with friends in real life um, and you watch a lot of movies and you're kind of a nerd about it, uh, I think you're going to have a great time at this movie. Like, I, it's I, – I can't remember the last time I had so much fun in the theater – uh, like the crowd, the crowd was it was almost a packed house. Uh, the crowd was very uh, reactive to what was going on. It was just a great time. So I have been getting so many tweets of people who are like, "I did not want to see this movie. I had, did not care about it, but I heard you mention it. I went to see it, and I absolutely loved it. And I'm so happy. And I'm so happy to hear that it was a packed house for you. Yeah. I want this movie to make all the money, so they make another one. I want." everybody to know about this movie i want to own it and watch it a thousand times and memorize every line i adore this movie it is truly great uh and my my mvp of the movie is jesse plemons ridiculously good ridiculously good i mean but there's a lot of mvps there are many mvps i mean i think by definition actually that's not possible jeff but you know um (laughs) but he was my favorite of the film (laughs) Uh, uh, so. Yeah, no, he's there are uh, there are very valuable. Uh, it's a very valuable ensemble, is what yeah. I would call it. Agreed, agreed, agreed. So, game night. It's out in theaters right now. Uh, check it out. Okay, another thing I want to talk about is something that I have to spoil in order to speak about it freely, uh, and that is a sp- movie special documentary, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'd say a, special. I'd say war crime. Um, yeah, that's no. it. Let's go with that. Uh, it is called Darren Brown's The Push, and it debuted on Netflix this week, and it has a pretty interesting pitch. It's about uh, Darren Brown, who's a mentalist from uh, the UK. He tries so to he, conv- So he solves crimes with the FBI? No, not I've, quite. I've, sure. I've, so, I've, I've seen that mentalist. <laughs> let, let me just say, I'm actually a really big fan of Darren Brown. Like, and What I like about Darren Brown is he's firstly he's a hugely talented entertainer so uh he he knows how to put together an entertaining you know 30 60 90 minutes of television like uh, as a baseline very good at that but also his stuff is so out there and far-fetched that he causes me constantly to question the nature of my reality right it's kind of like nathan for you you know like when you watch it you don't actually believe that some of those things happened in real life and and you kind of wonder what's real, what's not real. Darren Brown is really skilled at blurring the line between those two things. And so uh, I has been entertained by him in the past. I thought, hey, this thing is pretty interesting. The Push, it's on Netflix right now. Uh, I think it's like 70 minutes. This is not going to be a massive time commitment for me. 
And the the premise is that he's going to try to convince someone to commit a murder. And and so he's he's positing, hey, if we um if we put enough social pressure on a regular person, could we commit could we convince someone to commit murder for a in an hour. Show? In an hour, in one hour it's time like, period. This person's gonna think they're a chicken. This person's going to uh, <laughs> run around the stage barking like it's, a dog. This one's going to commit murder. murder someone. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like I was describing it to people like it's um, it's kind of like the Truman Show, but like more overtly evil. Yeah. So uh, in order to really talk about this special, we're, we're going to have to spoil it. But, but before I spoil it, I'll, I'll just say that I think it's very terrible that this exists. Uh, it made me feel bad while watching it. I didn't like humanity or Darren Brown while I was watching mm-hmm. it. Uh, and the ending is truly galling. You know, Christy has written up a great piece, which we'll link to in the show notes, about the ending of The Push by Darren Brown on Netflix. And it, 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 it almost, it, it, it like really upset me, but not in the way that Darren Brown wanted me to be upset. Right? It so upset- you, you, feel, you do not feel bad spoiling this because you don't think people should watch it. Uh, well, I feel bad spoiling anything against anyone's will, but we are going to right. give a clear spoiler warning right now. So if you don't want to hear what happens at the end of Netflix's The Push, you should tune out for the next five minutes or something. But your recommendation um, would be don't watch to it. You, you spoil it instead of watching it. That's yeah, right. I, would, I would say that. And, I would and, say if you want to know what happens, just listen to us. I don't think you need to watch this show. Yeah, and, and I would also say that this show should not exist. It should be taken off Netflix and never reviewed by anyone again. Um, but all that said, let's, let's get into it. So, so essentially what they do is they, rope, they uh, had these people audition for this TV show that Darren Brown is doing. And a lot of people audition. But then they, they say, hey, none of you are hired. And the real show happens like months later when the people don't even know. They've already signed their Dave, release form. I have form. a question. Yes? Because I'm not very familiar with this guy. This is my first exposure to him. So yep. when people audition for his show, what do you think they're expecting? I think they're expecting like something uh, lighthearted and, and mind-blowing, um, but, but uh, nothing as because dark Because he's as a this. magician. Like I know yeah, he calls himself yeah. a whatever, but he's a magician. So they're expecting kind of a... A, pr- a lighthearted prank show yeah. is what you think. I, I okay. think that's correct. I think that's pluck that's like a correct. chicken, bark like a dog. I think that's correct. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. So anyway, uh, they all auditioned, but then all, none of them were hired. They signed these release forms that I'm saying that I'm guessing said, "Hey, uh, I am allowed to mess with you however I want for the next year," you know. And then months later, they're hired for for what the uh, contestants think is a completely random other event. They're, they need to go to this charity auction, right? So uh, the, the, show, the uh, show, The Push, primarily follows one person who goes to this charity auction and then is subjected to an increasingly difficult set of circumstances that cause that person to compromise their morals. Um, but So this person is aware that they're being filmed this no, whole time? No, they are not. No. It's all Truman Show-esque, so they don't know that they're being filmed. Everything is a setup. The entire charity thing is a fake... Everyone is an actor in the entire thing, right? Like 70 people, I think they said, are actors yeah. in it. And then on top of that, the charity they invented is crap. It's not a real charity. But they hired celebrities to do, like, a sizzle reel video. So a real sizzle reel video plays talking about the charity. That is called The Push. Or it's called Push, I think. is, right, is uh, And it stands for, like, something, you know, 
Something about children. Something about children. Like it's an acronym that's you know, and uh, and throughout the evening, it's reinforced how important this charity is, right? Like this charity is saving children's lives, right? And through an increasingly unlikely series of events, basically, uh, it, it comes to pass that if uh, if this person wants to save the charity and prevent charity from being like the charity from being completely ruined, they need to push an old dude. Off of the roof of a building, right? That's that's essentially what happens at the end. And uh, <laughs> the the circumstances by which that ha- it's so ridiculous, Christy. I mean, it, it is mm-hmm. ludicrous all the stuff that happens to the the people. Like basically, a person do you think has it's heart- on the up and up? Do you think it's a legit? I, I don't. I don't think so. I think. It, I think it is fake. But but yeah. um. But basically, I want it to be fake. I really don't. I don't know how much of my opinion of it is is shaded by the fact that I want it to be fake. Right. Because it's right. really upsetting. It, it is truly the, upsetting. So so basically, like 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 an old guy dies, and then in in the uh, in the course of this this hour during which they're going to subject this guy to this stuff, and the, this old guy dies. Who he's like very important. He's a very important benefactor. Um, and then they need to like pretend that the old guy is alive because otherwise they lose all the charity money. But then turns out the old guy is actually not dead. He just had this heart condition that makes him look like he's dead. And he's super pissed now because everyone thought he was dead. So they need to push him off the roof. Because um, he's threatening to pull his money and yeah, he pulls he's his money, pull his the money charity and, will fall. and ruin the charity if they don't push him off the roof. So uh, anyway, at the end of the, of, the, uh, of the special, this guy you've been following for an hour – uh, everyone's trying to convince him, like, "Hey, you got to push him off. You got to push him off, or else we're all screwed. Push him off, or else we're all screwed." And the guy is like, "I can't do it. I can't do it." And he walks away, and he doesn't push. And we're like, "Oh, okay. I guess this TV show isn't so terrible." But then, uh, what you find out is that this is the fourth time they've done this test, and the first three times, every single person pushed. Uh, and they show like a rapid fire montage of like all the people um, pushing the dude off and the another, edge of the thing. I call bullshit. Another <laughs> element that's really upsetting about this, though, is that there are points in the thing where Chris, the guy that the main the show focuses on, chooses not to do the thing they're pressuring him to do. Like at one point, they decide that they're going to put this man's body that they believe is dead at the bottom of a set of stairs, and they try to encourage him to kick the body so it'll have bruises that'll make it look like this guy just fell, and he refuses. But the other three people all did it. They all kicked and the it body, was just, yeah. Well, the people like, that you didn't watch the whole time? Yes. 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 That's so here's the thing. Or shit. <laughs> well, here's the thing. That so is... you, the, the show gives you this moment where you think that humanity is redeemed. That this yeah. man put under a circumstance where it was basically all designed so that he would snap and kill somebody. Uh, didn't do it. And we're supposed to feel good about that. But then the show like pulls that out from under you like a rug and says all these other people did do it, but then only shows you like this montage clip so you don't get the full context. And it Because feels, it's not real! <laughs> it feels gross, is what yeah, I'm saying. It, it feels super gross. Uh, and you, it does make you question whether or not any of it happened. There is one really interesting part of this, this uh, special, though, which is that, as we've indicated... Uh, there was a huge portion of time where a character uh, in the in the you know in the stage play whatever the hell they're putting on dies and or theoretically dies and they're carrying this guy around and they're moving him around. Um, so you're, you're, you might be wondering to yourself, well, if they're all actors, how did they have this guy play dead for an hour? And the answer mm-hmm. is they created an extremely intricate dummy that mirrors this guy's uh, like. Uh, 
It's like uh, the most detailed dummy that's ever been created. Like yeah. they even had to create bones for it so that it would feel like a body. Because at a point they're carrying around this guy, so it needs to feel real. And they they individually put in every single one of this guy's like thousands of hairs on his head and face. Uh, so that was like a really interesting thing from a filmmaking perspective. Uh, that's true. The but, one thing that really yeah, go ahead. Like continues to needle me is the sense of comedy that Brown tries to bring to the show because it's just really garish and disgusting to me. Like I mentioned the fact that the charity is called Push. So the whole time they're having these conversations, the word Push is all around him, which I'm sure is also supposed to be a signal of some sort. Yes, but to the viewer, it feels like a wink. Yeah. Right. But it also feels like a wink. And then within the video that they make of the celebrities, there's a part where the celebrities say, uh, you need to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And that literally plays like on a huge screen behind him as all these people are telling him that he needs to push this guy off a roof. And then there's like the element, the fact that they are dragging around this body that they believe to be dead and trying to act like he's alive. And the guy's name is Bernie. It's just... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> come on like it's just so kind of crass like they're trying to be like isn't this funny and i'm like this isn't this is gross this is like a gross manipulation it's like you've watched compliance and said but what if a comedy and no no like i just i watched it because i was very judgmental of the trailer and i thought that's not really fair i sh- i can't have a firm opinion on this until i've seen it so i felt i had to watch it i shut it off halfway through because it was really bothering me but then i wanted to know how it ended and so i wrote my piece for pajiba saying that the ending's worse than you thought because i thought people should have the ability to know what the ending is and if they want to endure that and i don't know that there's any value to this i just feel like it's ugliness yeah so i, I want to get to that but first of all like the subliminal messaging has been a huge part of darren brown's whole shtick uh, so if you go, if you like look on YouTube for Darren Brown, like you'll see he he does a lot of like oh you know I I actually said the word pushed you fifty times during this conversation that's why you wanted to push the guy you know like he'll do crazy stuff like that so that's very much part of his whole thing and I, I don't think it's necessarily meant to be comedic but the Bernie thing they're you know they have this dead guy and they're pretending he's alive and they call him Bernie uh, that feels too crass to be a coincidence um, in my opinion uh, so I agree with you there Christy. And mm-hmm. uh, so, and just one final word on this ending, right? What, what happens at the end is, yeah, the, the the original guy doesn't do the push, but then three other people do do the push, and you, you show them doing the push, and then Darren Brown comes on, and he's like, "Hey, guess what? You didn't you didn't kill someone. You didn't kill someone. It's everything's okay." And then you have these like interviews with them, like talking head interviews, where they're like talking about. Oh man, I can't believe that happened. Like from now on, I'm not going to subject myself to peer pressure right. anymore. As though they didn't just decide to murder someone, right? That's like, the part that my husband was like, "Bullshit." My husband was like, <laughs> "If that were me, he's like, I would lose my mind on those people." And like the fact that none of them are angry when they find out that they've been toyed with for an hour and that they thought they killed somebody, they all just are like, "Oh, what a hilarious prank!" As if <laughs> someone like threw a pie in their face. And I like that's the part that I'm like, this can't be real. Yeah, like I don't isn't. know. I, I want it to not be. It isn't. It, it is just I, so I, insane. Like it's so ridiculous that I, I just don't think there's any way it could be real. Because yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, they just you you see people just decide to kill someone. Also, um, you know, Darren Brown says at the end, like he he gives this very stern speech that says, "Oh, hey, you know, maybe now that we understand how peer pressure works, we can do things to prevent it from happening." Which is just the dumbest thing because, I mean, this this 
experiment adds nothing new to the field of like uh, social pressure that people like right. Stanley Milgram or Philip Zimbardo already pioneered decades ago. It's like, guess what? People in highly engineered situations can be convinced to do terrible things. Who knew? Who knew, guys? Who knew? <laughs> I, I think it's fine for you guys to discuss this as a piece of entertainment because that's all it is. But I really would would advise against uh, talking about it on its terms because it is not an it is not an honest piece of art. I, and, and I agree. I, we, I, we have no explicit evidence of that, Jeff. But I I agree with you. Like in in concept, that's the but, shtick. The the yeah. mentalist shtick is not honest. <laughs> it is a it is a performance art series of lies that's the shtick and uh, you can buy into it but it's at your peril i, I i'm Agreed. i'm a big skeptic at, i don't at think point. anyone here i don't think christy or i think that it was actually real uh, or at least we have heavy doubts at the very least but it is certainly being marketed as real you know i mean it does remind not, me mm-hmm. of yeah. a, a show that i got very into in the early 2000s and i wonder if any of you guys ever watched scare tactics Mm-mm. oh yeah Oh, I loved yeah. that show. That, that was that so Frank much fun. Show where, like, Just scaring people. Werewolf. Well, yeah, but yeah. That was convincing like... people of the most ridiculous <laughs> uh, sci-fi concepts, you know, yeah. and, right. and, uh, and yeah. it was cruel in its own way too. But my girlfriend and I at the time, boy, we loved watching people freak out when they thought that there was a real wolf, wolf man or a, well, yeah, you know, well, an right. actual alien abduction happening or something. There was, was a special called Darren Brown Apocalypse where he convinced uh, someone that the apocalypse had happened and zombies were coming Jesus. to get him. So I don't I don't know. I don't like prank shows. I don't I, I prank shows tend to make me my teeth go on edge because I'm just kind of like, I don't know. A lot of it just seems really me. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It if, is you wanna, if you want to if you want to watch someone really rich and famous, fuck with someone else. You know, Darren Brown's work is really great. And maybe I'm just not, maybe I just wasn't in the mood for it. Uh, but in any case, uh, it's Darren Brown's The Push. It's on Netflix. It is not something that should be watched by anyone, according to Christy and I. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I've been watching this week. So, uh, all right, Divin your heart award. What have you been watching this week? Uh, well, uh, not that. Uh, <laughs> two other Netflix things, I guess, because Netflix is just God. Now, Netflix is our content provider, and you know we just suck at the teeth of Netflix all day. Yep. That's us. Uh, but seven hundred pieces of content we hear coming next year. It's insane. Eight billion dollars yeah. worth of original content. Yeah, yeah. Insane. Uh, I've been watching Ugly Delicious, which is the new David Chang show. And, uh, yeah, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know, I love food shows. Um, this is a very good food show. And there's certainly a spectrum, right? I think some food shows are really badly produced, uh, kind of dumb, kind of kitschy. Uh, and thinking of like, uh, you could put like a lot of the food network and travel network stuff on that end. Maybe, um, thinking like, uh, for me, like, uh, Andrew Simmern, you know, and his, uh, mm-hmm. his bizarre foods things. I think that's like a good middle of the spectrum. You know, it's not a well-produced show, but he's a likable guy and he tells vaguely interesting things about where he goes. And, you know, he's, he's somewhat informative. So that's kind of like where I go into it. This show just feels like really good. It's a very fascinating look at uh, the dirtier type of foods. You know, it's not focused on like high. Well, it's more like it's you think of like uh, what's the other the Netflix food show? Chef's Table. Chef's Table, right? Chef's Table, you know, you you have the beautiful classical score opening and like it's very it feels very high end. And I think Chef's Table even kind of calmed down and is looking at slightly more low end stuff now. Uh, Ugly Delicious is looking at like food culture and kind of, you know, I think on all levels. But it's like, uh, it's Dave, like stuff that's yep. like uh, fusion stuff, basically, right? Like, 
Uh, yeah. and, and also, like, basically food that you buy from a cart on the street versus yeah. uh, get oh, in, okay. a, in a... Like, so, like, street food, yeah. Um, home cooking, like, traditional foods, too. Like, it's exploring food culture in a lot of different ways, but I just think it's really interesting, too, because a lot of these shows, you know, they'll be like, okay, we're in Japan this episode, and we're going to talk about this. And this show kind of has broader topics, uh, like, uh, I think pizza is, is one of them. Um, and it kind of like bounces back and forth between different locations and different people and different points of view about how, uh, you know, food is produced. And I think that's all very interesting. It's just really well done. David Chang's a fascinating guy and an entertaining guy to watch. And, uh, yeah, I just really enjoy it. I love a good, like a well-produced food show. That's the thing. You can tell mm-hmm. when summer just look bad. Like, uh, the cinematography isn't great. Uh, the food porn is just not there. And a lot of the Food Network stuff, I think, falls along that line, unfortunately. This one's just, like, fun, enjoyable. Another good one uh, uh, wait, that so Netflix just, just I just added. want to say the name again, yep. Devendra. It's Ugly Delicious on Netflix. Yeah. And, uh, Ugly Delicious on Netflix. Yep. Yeah. People should check it out. And another one on Netflix, by the way, uh, the uh, the one with uh, Phil Rosenthal, the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond. Uh, he has his own show on Netflix now called, I think it's uh, Ever Somebody Feed Phil. Right. And... Just, I think that one's a much more focused thing about him exploring a specific like region or something. Um, but he is a funny guy, and just him, he has this look on his face like when he tastes something delicious and he his eyes light up, it's like a child tasting, you know, pizza for the first time or something. It's just like a very wonderful childlike sensibility. So that's a lot of fun as well. Uh, probably less informative than Ugly Delicious, but you know, worth watching. And uh, so that's uh, somebody feed Phil also on uh, Netflix. And I also saw The Ritual, which you talked about a couple weeks ago, Dave, uh, the David Bruckner horror film. And uh, I know like you were more iffy on it, I think. Um, I, I genuinely love this movie. Um, I think it's a great small-scale horror film. Uh, it has the formula of a film like The Descent, and I think we've talked about that. Uh, it sets up some great emotional stakes at the beginning and spends the entire movie kind of playing those out while also giving us, like, some traditional scares. Uh, But it's, like, genuinely creepy. I love the characters, and the imagery is just really well done. You know, I'm less a fan of, you know, scare uh, horror movies that just scare you with very obvious things. Uh, This movie is just very menacing. More like Uh, psychological horror, a lot of it is. It's it's psychological, yeah. Um, It's just like an aura of dread, too. Like, it does make you feel uneasy as an audience. And I think some of the imagery is great, too. Like, the way it relates to things earlier in the film. And uh, it's all set in this, like, uh, forest in Norway, I think. And it, you know, it brings in imagery from somewhere that's not that. And just that effect, I think, is kind of jarring and weird and kind of cool. And uh, great creature design in this film as well. Um, there is a monster, of course. And I think it's, it's just really unnerving the way it's put together. And its limbs are, like, very unique, I'd say. So if you like horror films, especially if you like The Descent, uh, check this out, but then you know, go back and watch the the descent. I think that movie is a masterpiece, and this one quite it isn't quite there, but it's pretty enjoyable. All right, that's the ritual. It's on Netflix right now. Jeff Kanata, you've been watching stuff. Yeah, Hulu's new show, The Looming Tower. I've oh, watched yeah. the first two episodes of. Uh, this is a big budget, star studded affair. Um, Jeff Daniels, um, Michael Stuhlbarg, uh, Peter Sarsgaard. And it tells the story of uh, what was happening inside the FBI and CIA in the run-up to uh, 
So the looming tower, I think, is a clear reference to mm-hmm. the Twin Towers. Uh, and the first episode is not a spoiler to say ends with a big pulling back shot of the still uh, in existence Twin Towers looming above the city. Um, I think this is a very well-made show, a very well-acted show, a very well-written show. But man, there's this – it's become very in vogue to do these real history dramatization shows. We saw uh, People vs. O.J. Simpson and – Menendez brothers and all you know. Every, these There's shows. been a bunch of stuff about nine eleven. You know, like mm-hmm. I mean, didn't anyone see that Charlie Sheen movie nine eleven <laughs> that came out this yeah. Special? Wait. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure we all saw that. <laughs> uh, I mean this this show at least it doesn't even start talking about nine eleven yet. We we are we are back in 1998 building uh, up talking about Al Qaeda and Bin Laden. Uh, Bin Laden features heavily in the first two episodes and is almost entirely expressed through actual footage of him. There isn't an actor playing Bin Laden, but all the other actors in the show are playing real people. And um, knowing what I know about history, it is, I mean, it's kind of hard to watch. It Mm -hmm. it is, uh, I don't understand... It, it doesn't seem to shed any light on things other than to show how people botched the run up to 9-11 because we all know where this is headed, right? And um, I'm not sure seeing the infighting between the CIA and the FBI, seeing John O'Neill, who I don't know if you guys know who that is, but I don't want to spoil anything for people mm-hmm. that are watching the show. But uh, right. I know some things about these real people that um, is part of the public record, right? It is um, – but it's, it's kind of like, like we know they messed up, so like, do we need to watch a whole show about how they messed up? Yeah, yeah like right. what what, what like broader truth pe- does it illuminate? Right, like the People versus O.J. Simpson felt interesting because there was all of this drama during the trial, and yes, we knew it, but the behind the scenes was interesting. But it led to, uh, you know, some people think a guilty man going free, and that's bad, but it it didn't lead to thousands of people dying. You know what I mean? It's, it is, I think it's a, a, a very different scale here and a very different situation. Well, and it, I don't understand what point you're making, Jeff. Are you saying that because thousands of people died that it's like the, the bar must be higher for this piece of entertainment to tell us something like more, like uh, no. deeper truth. Like what, why does the number no, of people I, that I, died make a difference? I don't get, uh, I, it, I, it makes a difference for my enjoyment of the show. I see. The, mar- yeah. the march toward that inevitable end and seeing how the threat wasn't taken seriously and the infighting between the two departments was led to it being possible. And we, you know, the first couple of episodes, we're seeing the the bombing at the embassy in Nairobi. We're seeing um, Yemen. It is it, 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 all these things that we're very aware of that are horrific and. I don't know. I found it to be as well made as it seems to be. I just don't understand why I would want to watch it. Um, So are you going to continue then? I don't think so. Uh, My wife is enjoying it much more than I am. And, but there's these like interpersonal dramas. Like we see in, you know, marital infidelities and we see relationships and it's like, yeah, but we're leading up to nine 11. It it just feels, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that it, doesn't have a right to be. I just feel like I'm not going to enjoy this. Right. So, right. 
Uh, All right, well, that's I, I The Looming don't. Tower, and it's on Hulu right now. It's gotten some mixed reviews, uh, but there's some good talent behind it. I think Alec, Alex Gibney did a couple episodes. Jeff, Jeff Daniels in the show, right? So. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, if you know the real people, like uh, Michael Stuhlbarg plays uh, Richard Clark, who oh, yeah, has, yeah. and he freaking nails him. Like he's, it's like a spitting image of Richard Clark. It's really interesting mm-hmm. to see. Um, so in that sense, it's it's kind of interesting. But man, it's just hard. It's it's grim, you know. It's yeah. grim. And all right, that's the Looming Tower. Christy, what have you been watching this week? Okay, so I want to start off with something that was actually nominated for an Oscar and you can watch on Hulu now. Uh, it's called Revolting Rhymes and it was nominated for Best Animated Short. It did not win. Uh, I didn't see all the animated shorts, but I love this one. Uh, it's based on a Roald Dahl book called Revolting Rhymes, which is about uh, a wolf who tells the actual stories of Little Red Riding Hood and Jack and the Beanstalk and Snow White and Cinderella. And it's told... With this very Raw Doll tone, and it's very kind of weird. And um, the, like, for instance, in it, um, Little Red Riding Hood is not nearly so defenseless. Um, she conquers her wolf and makes a wolf skin coat, and that's kind of like one part of the story. And then um, this wolf is kind of like talking about how he doesn't really appreciate her for certain reasons that you might be able to figure out. And it was it's actually really sweet and weird and funny and it has a lot of great voice talent um dominic west is the voice of the wolf uh rob bryden does a bunch of voices from like the banker pig to like this stupid king and um then they have rose leslie as red riding hood and oh one of the uh, one of the stark boys plays jack uh, isaac hempstead heath or whatever his name is i'm trying to bring it up on itunes and it's not giving me the full isaac cast hempstead right i think is what you're yeah thinking. there you are <laughs> um nailed it but yeah it's it's <laughs> it was one of those things that came up one night on netflix and it was like you watch a lot of cartoons <laughs> how about this one and uh, I turned it on not having any idea what it was. I didn't know it was nominated for anything. And I just put it on. And I was really charmed by this take on a fairy tale. And it's really short. I, I think, um, all told, it's like two 20-minute episodes or something. Um, but it's two parts. It's really sweet. And it's really easy to watch. Very fun. I recommend everybody watch it. It's a nice way to kind of like end your day and kind of come down. And uh, I even recommended it to my three-year-old niece. And she informed me she had already seen it. And quickly started telling me her favorite parts. So uh, it's kid approved. Nice. So that's Revolting Rhymes, and it's available on Netflix. You said? Yeah, it's on Netflix. You know, I've uh, I'm not sure if this is part of it, but I've been buying the uh, Oscar nominated shorts on iTunes um, the last couple of years, and I recommend that to anyone because uh, you can only buy them the year that they're out. So far, in my experience, like you can't go back and buy like. 2012's Oscar-nominated shorts. So um, if you want to keep up with the Oscar-nominated short, shorts, I'd recommend buying them every year. I don't know if this is in the, the pack that is um, that is on sale this year. Because it, was it nominated for Best Animated Film? Animated or? Short, yeah. A- animated Short, yeah. It, it might be in there. Um, I'm trying to check right now. But uh, cool. Revolting Rhymes. What else have you been watching? Uh, I actually caught up on all of Westworld in a weekend, um, which was dark. And yeah. I don't know that I recommend that to people, um, but I'm going to South by Southwest this week and they're doing an activation where they were like, you can visit the set of Westworld. And I was like, I guess I should watch Westworld. <laughs> and um, now I'm obsessed with Westworld. Yeah. It was, it was, I actually, I'm glad I binged it because I remember when people were watching it, there was a lot of like infighting about the show 
on Twitter and I couldn't follow any of it because I didn't understand what the show was about. And I had maintained my uh, ignorance of the show's twist and turns pretty effectively, actually, because there was only one thing that I had actually heard about before. Um, but for those that don't know, uh, Westworld is based on a Michael Crichton book. It is effectively Jurassic Park, but with like cowboy robots. So there's a cowboy robot park. And what if the robots could hurt people? Uh, and they're not supposed to be able to hurt people, but what if they could? And what's interesting is that it doesn't just go the horror movie route, which there was a movie made, version made of this in the 60s or something. I have not seen the movie. Um, but this is, goes more with the kind of like, what is sentience? What does it mean to have independent thought how what control do we have over our lives so you're watching this thing about robots but as it goes along it's very clear that it's actually talking about people and how we only have a limited amount of control in our lives and um that became increasingly suffocating as i watched it so it's cool to binge because then you don't have to deal with everybody's like theories and stuff you can just like keep writing writing through and i was really happy i figured out one of the twists that was not spoiled i just figured it out and i was really proud of myself but um, it is like at the end, it like left me with this like hollow feeling. And I tweeted out and was just like, hey, so if anybody has some suggestions of something fun to watch. So thanks to everyone who helped uh, get me. I, I jumped back into happy endings after that because I needed to. But um, Westworld is incredible. And I know I'm like the last person to realize that. And I caught up just before season two starts. But I was really blown away by the storytelling and by the way that there's like a lot of nudity and violence, but it never feels exploitative. It always feels like it's there to show stakes and they're there to show this ever-present humanity even within this cold world that's full of like robots i think the nudity actually uh, also serves a really good storytelling purpose in the sense that it um uh, emphasizes the fact that a lot of these uh beings are robots you know that mm -hmm. like when you see all these robots sitting or cyborg whatever the name what i don't remember what they're called um but when you see all these things sitting around like all naked it just is it re like it, it reminds you that like oh like you know having shame or being cold you know and needing clothes like is, is an essential part of what makes us human and that mm -hmm. uh seeing people who don't care about that is like kind of uh seeing things that look like people but don't care about that is is deeply uncomfortable in some ways. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also That's a way they use the costumes for status too, because like the humans are always clothed, right? But yeah. the robots are, you know, because exactly. they're just—it's like a Barbie doll. Like they're just, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. You don't need to have their stuff on when you're working on, you know, their configurations or whatever. Yep. Uh, I love the show. Uh, I actually host a podcast about the show with Joanna Robinson called Decoding Westworld. Um, so, uh, big fan and really psyched for season two, uh, but. Westworld is available right now on HBO. All right, and now I'll download all of your podcasts and catch up on that on my way to South by. Uh, <laughs> that sounds good. I mean, I think we spend a lot of that podcast theorizing on what's going to happen with Joanna, mostly like basically predicting the entire show. Uh, <laughs> in like episode three, she had called the entire thing pretty much. So That's I don't, funny. I don't know how enjoyable the podcast is in retrospect. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, it's because I, I didn't get to have those conversations, right? right like I was right. just my husband and I were talking, but we didn't know what people were talking about with the show, and now it's like I can I can dive in to that but i'm kind of glad i just got to watch it all in one go because i remember people being very frustrated week to week and when i was watching it i was like oh no i get that if you ended an episode in this cliffhanger and then people mm -hmm. had to wait a week i'd be mad too i yeah. think binge watching it is probably the best solution Agreed. there because i Agreed. was one of those frustrated people where i feel like the show didn't give us enough like actual enough good stuff 
to uh, I don't know, justify the the insanity of fan theories. Uh, but I, I guess the puzzle pieces ended up working out, right? Like it it accomplished what yeah. the creators wanted to. Agreed. I just didn't mm-hmm. find it enjoyable as an experience, like as a week to week experience. It was yeah, supremely frustrating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I agree Very that binge watching is the best way world, to in, enjoy this. What were you yeah. saying, Jeff? I said I'm really excited about Shogun World. Yeah, if if that's a thing, which we don't know if it will be, but anyway, I thought we heard confirmation that it's actually called Shogun World. Uh, well, it said on the show Samurai World. I don't. I I wouldn't. I wouldn't trust anything you hear. I'm just gonna put. I it. read that on SlashFilm.com. I'm just saying I wouldn't trust <laughs> anything. Like you, you just don't know what the show is gonna do. Is all I'm saying. Anyway. Um, Joanna knows though, so tune in to Dave's other podcast. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, That's not good in retrospect. <laughs> 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 All right, guys, let's move on to news discussion this week. The Oscars happened last night, guys. The Oscars happened. I, I kind of just curious, like overall thoughts on this telecast. I thought it was pretty rough. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought it, you know, I've been watching Oscars for decades. Uh, and this is probably one of the worst ones I've seen. It just felt listless, and like there were very few memorable moments. It finally came to life at the end when Frances McDormand got on stage. Um, mm-hmm. But in general, uh, just talking about the telecast itself, not even talking about the awards, uh, I thought it was not a great showing by uh, the best entertainers in the country. What did you guys think? Any... Any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I, I also saw it because I was looking for potential stories uh, on my end, too. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I wasn't too surprised by any of it. And the performances, I think the musical performances were all right, um, especially the Coco song. Uh, but beyond that, like a lot of the comedy, a lot of the scripted stuff just kind of fell flat. I thought Gael Garcia Bernal's performance was not good, guys. Um, yeah. I think but I, Mark yeah. Harris put it really well on Twitter when he said... I wish I could sing like Gal Garcia Bernal. Oh, wait, I can. <laughs> Which oh, I thought ouch. was just a I, I think assessment. that is part of the, I don't know, what they were trying to do, though. Sure. Because that is like the like the young boy who isn't quite perfect singer, you know, singing the song. And then it turns into something a little more professional. Fair enough. Did Fair enough. any of you guys happen to catch the Independent Spirit Awards? Uh, I have the, not. It, at least the opening monologue. Well, I the opening. The opening monologue is. I think I know where you're going with this. I think I agree. It is spectacular and uh, far out outstrips uh, the anything that happened in the Academy Awards, in my opinion. It's bolder. It's funnier. It's more fearless. It, it, it's more on point. Uh, John Mulaney and Nick Kroll hosted the Independent Spirit Awards this year. And I urge everybody to find on YouTube their opening monologue. No, I guess you can't call it a monologue if two people are saying it. But um, it is uh, wickedly smart. It is fearless. It is, it's on point. Um, and I, I really am a fan of, um, of Jimmy Kimmel. I, I like the guy. I, I don't watch his I show he, regularly. I thought he did a great job last year. Um, but yeah, he did do well, a great he job. He had a much harder year to step into because, like, you know, last year the jokes were basically about making like Oscars so white and stuff, right? And so you have a white guy making fun of himself, but now you have a white guy who's trying to make jokes about Me Too and Time's Up, and yeah, and but look like, at what John Mulaney and Nick Kroll did. Like exactly, they I mean, but that's nailed it, nailed like, it. There's 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 a there's a dexterity to it, and I think Kimmel is not. Like the thing with Melanie and Crawl, they're great, but they get to be a little more flippant because that's kind of their deal. 
like Kimmel, especially lately when he's been talking so much about healthcare and stuff, like he's a very earnest performer. So I don't know that he would have been able to pull off the jokes they're pulling off because of his persona. I think that that was, uh, I think they had a lot to contend with this year because they're trying to address the fact that there is this ongoing conversation about representation, not just for women, but also for people of color and also for people who are LGBTQA+. And they were trying to address all those things in a very sincere manner while also trying to keep things light. And I don't think you can do all of that, frankly, when you have a white dude as a host. So, like, I feel like they kind of hem themselves in a little bit. Like, if you remember uh, Amber Ruffin, she hosted the, uh, I think, the East Coast uh, Writers Guild Awards. And if you watch her opening monologue, like, she goes for it. And her whole, I mean, she's a writer for Seth Meyers' show. And part of the thing they do on that show is jokes that Seth can't tell. And she will tell jokes as a black woman. And, like, part of the whole thing was the idea that, like, you know, there are limitations on what what jokes we can tell because of the context of these times. And I think that that tripped up a lot of the lighthearted stuff. And then I think when they tried to go another way and like, let's do something that's not controversial, it was like, let's bring treats to a screening of Wrinkle in Time, which just I, I, I stopped watching at that point. I like, well, I came back to it, but like, I wasn't paying attention to that because I was just like, I, I also was bothered that they were barging into the Wrinkle in Time screening. I was like, just let them watch the movie. Like, don't interrupt the experience. I don't know. I would it's, agree with you, except that John Mulaney and Nick Kroll did it. Like, it's not just the fact that it was a white dude. I, I, I agree that maybe uh, certainly things uh, could have come out of a of a different face in a, in a much better way. But those guys managed to be on point, at, be advocates, be uh, uncompromising, be bold, be fearless, be funny. Uh, I, I don't know. I just don't, I don't I mean, totally, but it's also a different context because the spirit awards have a different expectation and that like the spirit awards are not getting as caught up in all the, uh, all these accusations and stuff because they didn't have as many nominees that were problematic. They don't have necessarily a contingent that like they didn't, I don't think they had to cast out Harvey Weinstein because it wasn't like a thing. So like there's less to contend with. They're not having to face the, they're not under the social pr- or the social pressures effectively of the Oscars. So there's different expectations. I think they did a hell of a job. I'm not trying to take away from what they did. I'm saying that it's a different it's uh, a different I, venue. I mean, I, I not I'm not even like uh, I think Seth Meyers actually did a far better job at the Golden Globes at, at the same task as well. And yeah. you know, in terms of overall Agreed. entertainment, like the Golden Globes were way better this year, in my opinion, than the Oscars. I just thought the Oscars, it was so long. Um, very, very little that was interesting happened. Um, uh, like I said, until like uh, Frances McDormand and her speech at the end. Um, and, it, you know, it feels like it's a really weird and transitory year, I think, uh, for the Oscars. Uh, we found out today that the ratings have been the lowest that they've ever been. Um, 24.9 million people still massive quantity uh, in today's day and age like to get that many million people watching one thing um, but every, everything is down this year the Super Bowl the Grammys like all of TV is down and, and, and live viewing is down and it doesn't help that uh, the movies themselves weren't super popular from a from the perspective of box office uh, Derek Thompson tweeted this out not too long ago that between 1990 and 2004, uh, the number of Best Picture winners grossing more than $200 million uh, was 12 out of 15. Um, the number of Best Picture winners grossing more than $200 million since 2005 is zero. So in the last 13 years, no Best Picture winners have grossed more than $200 million. 
I think um, that speaks more to the kinds of movies that are made and rather than where audiences are going. Those, I mean, are, I think the same, those are the same thing, Jeff. Well, the, people are making superhero films because they're making tons of money. And well, those movies also, I, are not getting nominated for Oscars or I think know, there's in, a, in above-the-line categories. Go ahead, uh, Christy. I think there's a two-prong approach to this. One is that w- the numbers are down for people actually going to the movies to begin with. Yes. Um, I say two. I'm, I'm, I'm going to add three. One is that the marketing of some of these movies has been really troubling. Um, I know that a lot of uh, a lot of people in my field are really frustrated with how Call Me by Your Name was rolled out, where we've been talking about that movie since October when it was playing all the festivals, and it took literal months for Sony Classics to sh- to open it in small smaller cities. So like. I don't even know if it opened in some places. It was such a bizarre distribution strategy. So, like, a lot of people just didn't even have the opportunity to see the movie they might want to see. And by the time it actually came to them, maybe they were, like, over it because they've been hearing people talk about this movie for three months now. So I think that's part of it. But then the third part is absolutely that there is... I think it's weirdly become, like, now the quote-unquote popular blockbusters are going to be the next frontier that Oscars has to reclaim because... I mean, honestly, last year, if you had asked me if Shape of Water had a shot in hell at getting nominated, much less win Best Picture, I would have said no. Because the Oscars have been so against genre, and specifically mm-hmm. horror. I pointed this out on Twitter. Like, a horror film hasn't won Best Picture since Silence of the Lambs in 1991. And, like, that's amazing. And someone pointed out to me that they would argue that, like, Shape of Water is, like, a lot of other things, and it's not just horror. And that's a good point. And that's honestly probably helped it, because it is also, like, an ode to old movies. So I think that did help it with the Academy. But I still thought there's just no way there's like, but the Academy is changing. And I, I was really hopeful this year that Logan would get a push and Logan would be the first superhero movie to really get that kind of attention that we haven't seen since I think like since Heath Ledger got nominated for The Dark Knight. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't seem like the studio had faith that that could that could break through. Like Wonder Woman was pushed that way. But I think Logan is a better movie comprehensively, uh, but it only got the screenplay nod. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I just the fact is, in my opinion, big studios are not making the the movies that get nominated for Best Picture anymore. I mean, it just, I mean, maybe some of them, like a couple of them, or a handful of them are, but like, uh, it's just not happening anymore, and that is really depressing. Um, so I'm just putting that out there, Jeff. I, I didn't mean to cut you off earlier. Really. Do you have any more thoughts on that? Uh, no, no, that's um, yeah, that's. I think I, I think that's what's happening. It's. Um, Richard, there, there's uh, this bigger gulf between the things that make money and the things that don't. Yeah, um, Richard Rushfield also made this point in the Ankler newsletter. He said, "If you steal the Spirit Awards nominees, sooner or later you're going to get the Spirit Awards ratings along with them," which I thought was a pretty brutal statement. Um, and it's certainly the ratings are not quite that low, uh, but I think, I mean, we'll see what happens next year and in the next few years. But I, it's, there's, it's very possible that we're going to continue to see the Oscars basically being a di- separate version of the Independent Spirit Awards. Um, well, uh, Shape of Water should make money. I mean, it's basically the answer to the question, what if you made Twilight, but instead of vampires, you used the creature from the Black Lagoon? Yeah, I, I mean, you, but you guys are pointing to like one or two examples. You know what I mean? Like, I, I agree there might be movies that actually do do very well and are nominated. You know, Dunkirk was nominated for Best Picture. Uh, it did make a bunch of money, but it is it become increasingly rare, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's just the direction that society as a whole is heading. It's actually a really interesting point because if you look back, like, I mean, you know, there were definitely just studio dramas that were 
conquering for years. Yeah. Like, even if they didn't win Best Picture, they were at least in there. Yep. Ghost was nominated. Guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ghost. it's not even, it's not even like, it's hard to even imagine a lot of those movies existing today, let alone being nominated. But, yeah, on that note, like, tons of montages during the telecast. It's just like. Mm-hmm. Well, it was the 90th. Uh, you it know. was the 90s, yeah. So I guess every 10 years we have to celebrate things somehow. But yeah, I yes. mean, they had like a montage for diversity. And then right after that, a montage to like celebrate uh, people in the military. It just felt like they were really <laughs> spreading well, spread movies the... about the military. Right. No, no, no. Like, but it, 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 but it was like. They actually celebrated people in the arts who were in the military. Like that could have been a thing. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. Um, but in any case, uh, okay. In, enough about the telecast. I thought it was pretty rough. Doesn't sound like you guys disagree. Uh, the awards themselves. I thought there were there were definitely a few awards that actually brought genuine delight to me. Um, yeah. Jordan Peele winning for Get Out, best screenplay. 100%. Uh, <laughs> as my fiance put it, it made the entire dreary slog worth it until that point to see <laughs> him yeah. win that award. Although um, seeing that, it was like, oh, man, we're not getting best picture, are we? Yeah, <laughs> like a lot of too. people, yeah, that's yeah. exactly when a lot of people And I think he knew it, too, because that speech yeah. was so good. He wasn't yeah. saving that. That was not the speech <laughs> you hold on to. Right, right. Um, Roger Deakins finally won. Oh, I, yeah. I almost cried when that happened because Roger Deakins has done so much to influence how movies look, and he's created so many beautiful images. Shawshank Redemption, No Country for Old Men, Skyfall. He's been nominated 14 times. He finally won. Super exciting. Um, and he also has been working with um oh the company that does How to Train Your Drive in Dream DreamWorks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's like their cinematographer for their animated movies effectively. Yeah. Like he helps yeah. them storyboard. And that's just when you watch those movies, you're like, oh obviously. Obviously <laughs> you have a master cinematographer mm-hmm. figuring this out. That's why How to Train Your Dragon looks amazing. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jeff, yeah. any uh any highlights for you from the evening? I, I mean, we've already talked about Francis McDormand that was uh absolutely wonderful to see and mm-hmm. Uh, a great moment, uh, the standout moment, really the moment I think of the of the whole thing. Um, and she's awesome. She's awesome in the movie. Um, I mean, I think th- I think it was a pretty um, a solid grouping of of awards. Yeah, I, I all, don't, the, was... all the nominees were deserving. You know, like yeah. there were there were very few that uh went to the quote unquote the wrong person. I think a lot of people got pissed that Faces Places did not win for best documentary. Yeah. Icarus won, right? So a lot of people were upset Icarus about that. Icarus is pretty good. Yeah. yeah. But um yeah. Uh, I was I, I I interpret the the Shape of Water win and more so even the uh, Guillermo del Toro win as you know the the Academy is an odd thing. It it, it feels like they need people to pay their dues and uh they won't give it to the first time nominee the first right. the first you know first movie you made you got to it it feels like these aren't just about the the thing that's being judged it's about mm-hmm. sort of this message along with it this feeling of like your place in the industry in the academy and uh, you know the academy loves movies about loving movies you know and shape of water certainly is that uh, and Guillermo, you know, he he had paid his dues, right? And Greta Gerwig and uh, <laughs> Jordan yeah. Peele. It's, Jordan they, Peele hadn't, yeah. they hadn't paid their dues yet, you know? It's like it felt like uh, it was more weighted behind that than really even 
the the merit of the accomplishment. Right. right. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, you should just print that on a gold plate, and you know, if people could see it, we'd mount it over any discussion we have of the Oscars. That it's not necessarily artistic merit, but there's a lot of different political factors at play. Yeah, I think that's part of why Gary Oldman wanted to be perfectly frank. Yeah. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. understand yeah. all the rave behind Darkest Hour at all. Like it's, it's fine as a performance, but it's like a little theatrical, a little hammy. And, like, that movie's not good, but, like, who cares? Because Gary Oldman, guys. And it's just, like, that was yeah. that was the one that really bothered me. And, like, not just because people are talking about all these things about men who are problematic and people, like, don't want to talk about the Gary Oldman stuff and, like, whatever. Like, if you want to keep it strictly to the performances or even to their careers. Like, I get that Oldman's had a lot of incredible performances, but not lately. Like, I, like... You know, he deserved an Oscar back when he was doing crazy stuff like Dracula and just really throwing himself into it. This role was not that interesting. John Lithgow played Churchill better on the crown than he has. And there were actually really beautiful performances in the best actor category that had got overlooked all season because the same four people won all of the major acting awards. Yeah, those four people being Sam Rockwell, uh, Gary Oldman, Francis McDormand, and Allison Janney. They basically swept all the awards. Right. right? And they're all really, like, I don't get the goal the olden thing i honestly think that movie's terrible but um all the other performances i think are good performances and i get it but it is frustrating because i find and i don't know if you guys have ever been on like a jury or whatever at a film festival but when you have these conversations where you have to like pick a winner it's not as simple as like everybody like this one best and you kind of have to like there's always a debate so it's frustrating to me that in all these different awards it's like it's as if it was math and everybody did the math and it was that these four are the best and i find that so Mm -hmm. frustrating because like I don't think that that art works that way. And I find it very vexing that through this whole season, it's just been kind of unstoppable that these these people are getting all these awards. And um, I just think that there were such beautiful performances that are going that got like shunted because these had such strong, you know, momentum. And it felt like if and I'm not saying that everyone votes the same way on purpose, but if. When like when you hear how every other guild is voting and you get your screeners, you're going to pay special attention to the ones that have already won awards because those are the ones people are saying are the best. And what we found out from the various, you know, THR honest Oscar poll ballot things that drive me insane is that a lot of the people. Well, I shouldn't say a lot that we know that there are Academy members who don't watch all the nominees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've said this about Get Out over and over. Dale, Daniel Kaluuya's performance. I hope I'm saying his name right. Uh, his performance, you have to watch that movie at least twice to understand everything that he's putting into that performance. Mm-hmm. And I doubt many of the Academy members did that. And I find that really frustrating because I think that on, Ga- I think watching Darkest Hour, you're getting everything Gary Oldman's doing the first time. <laughs> he's shouting, guys. He's right. Shouting. It's just like, it's a, to me, that's like such a prototypical Oscar mm-hmm. role. You know, it's just, it's a white man overcoming adversity and grumble, grumble, loud voice. Like, I get it. I just, Mm-hmm. Ugh, anyway, it's it's super annoying. I I was really sad that Mudbound got nothing, mm-hmm. and also there's very little conversation around Mudbound outside of uh, you know movie circles too. Like that's that brings to mind like how Netflix acquires these movies and gives them a huge platform. But yeah, maybe doesn't uh, I don't know if it's like the lack of theatrical yeah, releases. I mean, despite everything that's whatever, going on, yeah. like a, a theatrical release is still a pretty good way of getting the word out about a movie. It turns For out. sure. I, and I don't I don't know if it's like the Academy pays more attention to movies or are they looking down on like 
um, you know, streaming only things like it's a made for TV movie or something, because Mudbound is a tremendous film. Um, like it's, it was nominated for four categories, I believe. And, and, uh, you know, it was just, that was a shame. And it's a shame because we kind of saw the same thing happen with, uh, uh, was it uh, Beast from No Nation? Uh, which, Beast of No yeah, Nation, I think. Beast of No Nation, yeah. Which I think was a great film. Uh, certainly one that was worth talking about. And when it came time to the Oscars, like nothing. Yeah. Jeff, I just want to point out that we, <laughs> we just described Winston Churchill <laughs> as a white man who overcomes adversity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, no, I'm, I I say that regularly that like uh-huh. that's so much of what the Oscar movies tend to be. Right. Like you think about like Colin Firth played the king who overcame a stutter. Like mm-hmm. that's that's what those movies are. A lot of the time, you know, yeah. uh, James Franco played a guy who's not talented, but made a movie. James Franco plays a guy who loses an arm, but still climbs out of a valley. Like <laughs> It's not that they're not good movies. It's a little bit different than Winston Churchill, but I, I, I understand. Yeah. Your point. She's not talking well, about the actual he... dude, Winston Churchill, Jeff. I think she's talking about the concept of you know <laughs> Winston Churchill in that film. You know? ah. Yeah. Uh, like that, that these these movies all have a like a certain set of tropes that they use pretty frequently. Um, yeah, but I like I like I what mean, Kumail Nanjiani. There was Nanjiani a lot of adversity for Winston Churchill too. Like, well, let's be fair, the whole genocide in, in India thing that was tough. It was tough for him. <laughs> wow. I, like, I like what um <laughs> I like what Kumail Nanjiani had to say Winston about Churchill. it. Churchill, I just thought it was funny. No, no, I'm I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying it's hilarious. I, I like what Kumail Nanjiani had to say about it, you know, and it was apparently one of the biggest lines of the night when he said uh, that he spent his whole life uh, relating to uh, watching movies and relating to uh, straight white men and their struggles. And now they get to watch Kumail Nanjiani and relate to him. And uh, uh-huh. it's not that hard because he's done it his whole life. Um, yep. I know I'm butchering <laughs> it, but uh, I thought that was delightful. So I got to bring screeners home for Christmas, which is like a very exciting thing for my family every year. We were like, yeah, look at these. Huh. And, uh, you know, you get to feel like a big shot. And my whole family wanted to watch The Big Sick. Like, everybody was like, we want to we want to see this. We heard it was great. And, like, they loved it. And, like, my family's, like, real chatty. I know. You're shocked. Um, but <laughs> they legit all sat and watched the whole movie. They didn't talk over it. That's, like, a big deal in my house. And it was just, like, you know, The Big Sick was great. It was That was kind of the bummer. It was, like, I really wanted The Big Sick to win great, like, best screenplay. Yeah. And I was like, but I really want yeah. Get Out to win best screenplay. So... That was yeah. kind of the upside of this Oscars was that I wasn't super mad across the board because so many movies that I thought were really amazing actually did get a lot of attention this year. Yeah. And even though, you know, uh, uh, Shape of Water won Best Picture, and that's a pretty subversive movie. Like if mm-hmm. you look at that movie. So I'm pretty I'm still pretty happy with that, even though I would have preferred Get Out or Lady Bird to have won. Yeah, um, there were definitely many categories where I thought to myself, oh, man, that person was great in that. And then you see the next nominee and I'm like, oh, my gosh, but that person's even better. Like when they were doing Best Supporting Actress, you know, Allison Janney, su- yep. super good. But then they showed Leslie Manville and Phantom Thread. I'm like, oh, unbelievable. Then Laurie Metcalf and Lady Bird. And it's like, ah. Really, like all those people are so awesome in in all of those movies, um, and uh, had the same reaction during the best score as well. I, I I felt like Johnny Greenwood deserved to win for best score. To be honest, I think that Phantom Thread score is going to be one I'm listening to decades from now. Um, See, that's what I thought about Shape of Water, and I'm so mystified that like as soon as Shape of Water started winning all these awards, all of a sudden like anti Shape of Water Twitter formulated. Like it, I had not heard anybody talk smack on this of the score of this movie or anything before, right. and then yeah. as soon as it started winning, so everybody's like, "Well, it's not that good." And I was like, "What is happening right now?" <laughs> yeah, well, because I, it hurts things that they love. Yeah, 
I yeah. feel you, Dave, on that. On that. On that. I would. I think the same thing. In any other year, Sally Hawkins would have walked away with 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 the Academy Award, and I don't think she. Uh, it's sad that Frances McDormand's like this titanic, incredible performance that just you have to award. I, I think she is the clear winner in that category. But like nine years out of ten, Sally Hawkins. It feels like the that's the that's the performance to award, but right. Right. Uh, this year just unlucky. I'll just say one other thing, uh, and I think we should really move on uh, about the Oscars and and Guillermo del Toro specifically, Shape of Water specifically, which is that uh, Guillermo del Toro has had some bad luck over the years in terms of getting projects off the ground. You know, mm-hmm. um, do you guys remember he was supposed to direct The Hobbit at one point? Like, yeah. yep. this is you know, I mean, he, he bailed on it for good reason, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, uh, Mountains of Madness, another big yeah. project that like went sideways, uh, and not only that, I mean, he he has his flaws as a filmmaker and as a person, but in general, he is one of the people that like I think of as loving film so much, and in general, being a force for good in the world. Uh, and so, I'm just really glad he won, and I hope it opens up a lot of doors for him. Um, so. Wanted to give him a shout out because you know it's it, whatever your qualms of shape of water. Uh, we, I, I think we want people visionaries like Guillermo del Toro out there making more movies for us. So, okay, let's move on um, to. Uh, but before we get to our review, want to thank all the people that donated to the show this week. Uh, Lauren C donated, uh, and also Azim Tajani who writes in. I'm embarrassed to say I've been listening for years and have never donated. Every year or so, I make a comment to some other movie friends. <clears throat> like Sharik and Glenn about donating, but it seems we never get around to it. Hopefully this will guilt them into coughing up a few bucks. I always enjoy the thoughtful dialogue and the sense of compulsion I feel to see a new movie if I haven't watched it yet uh, by the time the episode drops. Uh, thanks to Azim, and thanks for the peer pressure on your friends. Uh, yeah, I learned from Darren Sharik, Brown Glenn. that peer pressure works. Yeah, yeah. So that's social pressure we can all agree on. Indeed. Um, thanks to new subscribers Richard Perez, Samuel Appleton, Appleton, Benjamin Gade, and Mitchell Lloyd for subscribing at the rate of $2 per month. If you want to support what we do on the show, go to SlashFilm.com, use the SlashFilmCast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Let's get to our review right now of Red Sparrow. Morning, Mama. What is it? I have to go away for a while. I was told to take a man to a hotel. They said he was an enemy of the state. Take off your dress. And then exchange my mother could get the doctor she needed. Instead, they cut his throat. There could be no witnesses. So they gave me a choice. Die or become a sparrow. That was from the trailer of Red Sparrow, the news film by director Francis Lawrence. Uh, I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. Ballerina Dominika Igorova is recruited to Sparrow School, a Russian intelligence service where she is forced to use her body as a weapon. Her first mission, targeting a CIA agent, threatens to unravel the security of both nations. So, Red Sparrow, Francis Lawrence. Uh, Been a huge fan of Francis Lawrence for a while. uh, Was not a fan of his Mm -hmm. Hunger Games movies. Uh, but we I, know, Dave. I we liked, know. Uh, you know, I liked I Am Legend, Constantine. Uh, you know, big fan of his stuff, and so it was was really exciting to see him 
return to the big screen in a kind of adult drama that they don't make anymore, you know, mid-budgeted, uh, with his frequent collaborator Jennifer Lawrence, Academy Award winner for uh, Best Actress, uh, and yeah, just really psyched about, about this pairing again, and uh, hey, this is like a mature film, and maybe there's going to be some interesting stuff. Certainly it's very graphic, um, but uh, Christy, let's start with you. I mean... What did you think of this movie, and did you feel like it illuminated something about Spycraft? No, I think it's deeply, deeply terrible and sexist. (laughs) Okay. Say more about that. Say more about why it was bad. So I know this is based on a book, and a bunch of people have tweeted at me that, like, but the book's not, and, like, cool, I didn't read the book. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you about the movie. Um, The movie wants to present her as if she is this strong female heroine who is rebelling against a system that wants to subject her body to its rules. And it's trying to do this like feminist thing where it's like the Russian government is trying to force her to use her body and her sex as a weapon, as a tool for them to get what they want through espionage. Um, I understand where overcoming that seems like it's a feminist message, but the film undercuts that at every turn by the way Francis Lawrence chooses to shoot Jennifer Lawrence's body. Uh, and I'm not just saying the use of nudity. You can have nudity in a film and still have it be empowering. I think Atomic Blonde managed that. But I think the way the film continually ogles her, there are upskirt shots. There are like lingering shots of her breasts. There are shots of her when she is being abused or violated that are close-ups on her like agape mouth. Like it's And there's like a shot where she's watching porn to learn how to like have, I don't know, BDSM sex with a spy. Who knows? And it's like, it's the same imagery. It's the same idea that we are supposed to be getting off on watching her be dominated and repeatedly have men attempt to rape her. Like, it's not empowering. It's really frustrating and gross. And like, about halfway through this movie, I wanted to walk out. But I, this is the job I've chosen. (laughs) Uh, Well, sorry about that, Christy. Um, (laughs) I think, I think, uh, I I guess everything you say is totally valid. The only, my only hesitation in what you said is like, I would not necessarily attribute all of this to Francis Lawrence. Um, My guess is Jennifer Lawrence is, is literally one of the most powerful actresses in Hollywood. I am sure she was like signed off on everything, like every piece of nudity that she appeared in, in this movie. Like, um, I, I don't know how much necessarily control she had, but she certainly had approval power over what was here. I read somewhere that she had like a, she was allowed to like approve how she was portrayed in this movie. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. I don't care. Uh, I know that she said <laughs> that she felt empowered by making this. Good for her, and I get it because that whole that whole thing happened where like nude photos got stolen of her. That's terrible, and she felt very robbed of her autonomy and of her body. And I get that, and she felt like this is her choosing to put her body out there for her work. I get yeah. that. I respect that. If she finds that she found making this movie empowering, fine. Whether or not she thinks the movie is empowering doesn't change the fact that I think it's horseshit and that it's gross. Mm-hmm. Uh, agreed completely. I agree. I'm not taking away from your interpretation at all. I'm just saying uh, from the causation or you know authorship perspective, uh, it's, it's more complicated than just Francis Lawrence. Um, but uh, Devendra, what did you think of this movie? Yeah, um, well, I don't think it's horseshit, but it's definitely, you know, a complicated <laughs> film. Well, I don't uh, think it's horseshit. <laughs> yeah. Let's put I, that, I, I, that on the box. <laughs> I genuinely like this movie. It's not something that I'd say I love. Uh, I've seen a lot of spy movies. This is, uh, you know, a genre I really enjoy. And what this movie is, it is a slow burn, brutal as hell. Like, there are torture scenes in this movie that... 
I I've definitely have not seen before. Like, uh, there's a certain tool that's used at one point that uh, just makes your skin crawl. Um, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate it as like an adult thriller that can be a little more extreme at times. And uh, at the same time, like, take its time. It's not a huge action fest. It's definitely not Atomic Blonde. But that's also a film that took its time. It's really interesting to see how both of those, you know, both of these movies kind of uh, use that tactic uh, differently. Uh, But I hear what you're saying, Christy. I I think for me, like, after seeing a lot of bad spy movies, to be honest, um, there are, like, some really interesting differences here. Like, the idea of uh, spies being taught to use their bodies as tools of the states um, and effectively get whored out for this work. Uh, that's something actually even the Americans uh, covers. And I think like that, you know, we've seen reports of like that tactic is something that's been used in spycraft, not just in Russia, but kind of all over the place just because it's so basic and it kind of works. And I like seeing that exploration of how, you know, somebody who was kind of forced into this situation how she used her wits and her smarts to work her way out of it. And to me, that's how I started enjoying the movie, right? Like, I definitely was worried when, is this a movie where we're just going to get to see Jennifer Lawrence be sexually assaulted many times? I hope not. And that first scene, like, there's a major scene early on in the film that is exactly that. Uh, I thought it was interesting seeing the journey of how she kind of acquires the power of herself and outsmarts everyone around her. Um, I found that to be fascinating. And there are definitely sequences in this movie that I've not seen before in a spy thriller. So I appreciate it for what it is. But Chrissy, yeah, I hear everything you're saying. Um, if you're, I, I think like if you're looking at this film through like a type of lens, like definitely it is, it could be seen as like purely sexist horse shit. I think there's more going on in there though. I think there's an attempt for it. I, my, my other argument is that even the way they show, like, if you want this to be a sexy spies film, mm-hmm. thriller, fine. And I feel like I get it. I get that the honeypot is a thing and I don't have an issue with that. But there is a way to shoot that that doesn't <laughs> seem like you're leering at the leading lady. And part of that could have been if they had tried a little bit of equal representation with female gaze and actually yeah, tried to make yeah. Jill Edgerton look like someone we're lusting after. But there's like two <laughs> shots of him shirtless and it feels like such an afterthought. There's one part where they have sex and he just may as well be part of the furniture. Like <laughs> it, the focus is entirely on her. You could, compl- if you, if you showed someone a still of that scene, they probably wouldn't notice him. Yeah. Well, I, there, I, there I isn't much man I have some thoughts on on that, but I, I will share them in the spoiler section. Um, <laughs> Jeff, why don't you take us through your thoughts on Red Sparrow? Well, I'm so glad to finally agree with Christy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been a long time coming. Um, <laughs> I was trying to think of an appropriate song to sing. I'm like, in this moment, but that, that seems wrong. I don't know. Uh, this movie made me feel icky. Uh, that's my <laughs> technical yes. term for it. It made me yeah. feel icky. Um, I think it's torture porn and uh, didn't didn't enjoy that. Um, uh, Devinja, you said it's not it's not uh, really an action thrill ride. There's no action. Don't do not go to this movie thinking it's going to be action. Mm-hmm. I, Heard somebody say, "Oh man, you cast it a little different. It could have been a Black Widow origin story." I'm like, "No, no, no, no." That is what the trailers try to make it look like, though. Yeah, yeah. and it even though like the, the basic biography of these characters is so damn similar too, that is kind mm-hmm. of a, a shame. Uh, but like, you're seeing most of the action in the trailers. Yeah, I had the very rare experience. Almost never happens 
where the ending of this movie made me go, wait, did I actually like this? Did I like <laughs> this movie? The the ending is really pretty darn cool. And uh, it made me go, wait a minute. Was I actually watching something that was good? And then I went, no, no, no. It's This movie is nobody has mentioned so far it is really long yeah and it's like two hours and 20 no, minutes yeah for no good reason really i think it's lugubrious it is yep. it is uh there's not much that actually happens outside of uh torture and sexual assault uh until the end and then you go oh wait was there a lot of stuff that was happening that i just wasn't aware of i guess but it didn't really set it up in a sense that I was actually thinking about any of that. So I'm not going to really give you credit movie, but I do think the ending is kind of cool. Uh, and we'll yeah. talk about that in spoilers, yeah. but, um, the movie itself leading up to that is not an enjoyable experience. And none of what I am put through makes me feel any sense of, uh, I mean, she, we, we established that she is, a pretty awful person really early in this movie. She does some pretty awful things. Some pretty awful things have happened to her, but she also isn't, you know, isn't a sympathetic character. And I just felt everybody's awful and it's all Mm -hmm. pretty. She is trying like the whole point, right? Is she is trying to take care of her mother and just trying to survive. So there is, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that assessment, Jeff. Um, But I think, I think everything else, it's a very relatable experience as to why she does the awful thing she does in the beginning, I think. And people in my audience actually kind of clapped when that happened. Yeah. I I didn't didn't have any issue with her character at at all at the beginning, certainly. But, but I mean, there's a scene in a, there's a scene, scene in a steam room that I was like, Oh, well, okay. Oh yeah. I guess. (laughs) And now I know you're talking about um but uh but anyway uh look uh, why don't we uh why don't we move to spoilers because i think we have we have much more to discuss i think uh Mm -hmm. i definitely lean more on christy and jeff's side on this movie than davindra i thought it's it's mostly pretty rough um and that there are moments of greatness i thought actually the opening 10 minutes was pretty great uh the Mm -hmm. in, in the opening there's a scene where you see jennifer lawrence uh dance in a ballet and it is seamless. Like, yeah, it's I, better I than anything in Itania for sure. Yeah, I, it looks incredible. Like, uh, I don't even know how they did it. You don't know where Jennifer Lawrence's head ends and the re- like. The actual ballerina's mm-hmm. body begins, uh, and the way it's cut is like the way it's edited is really interesting. And and I like the pacing. I was like, oh man, I'm so here for this. And then the movie grinds to a halt <laughs> for, the, for the following two hours and ten minutes. Uh, yes. And I just thought, from a pacing perspective. <laughs> Uh, was not super thrilling, and and some of the plot machinations are just ridiculous. So I want to dive into that um, if we can, and let's get to spoilers for Red Sparrow starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. Now. You want to be. One of the things that's interesting about this movie is that this is the first time I've seen a movie depict a quadruple agent, Um, (laughs) (laughs) which uh, I I, I read last year the idea of a triple agent um, or a couple years ago when like Zero Dark Thirty came out. One of the people in in that um, in that movie was a triple agent. Right. Which is 
You, you know, Dave, uh, one, of, one of the things I've learned watching the Winter Olympics is as soon as somebody does the triple, the quadruple is, is coming very soon thereafter. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So there is a triple agent in Zero Dark Thirty, which is the idea is that like a double agent is you are, you know, embedded with a certain group of people and um, and you but you're actually, you know, with another group of people. That's a double agent, right? Triple agent is you're with the, you know, the first group of people that you started with, but you're actually, you know what I'm saying? Like, and then quadruple yeah. is just the other way again. But you know, let me let me describe to you what they think that you think that they uh-huh. think that you think. Yeah, that's right. No, let me describe to you half the scenes in this movie. It's Jennifer Lawrence going to uh, the CIA or the Russians and saying, "Hey, here's what those guys just told me to do." <laughs> you know, like right. I was just with the Russians, CIA. Here's what we should do. Then she goes back over to the C- you know, and so on. Uh, interminable, like ad nauseum, ad infinitum, you know, uh, over and, and over gets again. beat up by one of them or yeah. the other of them. And then yeah. and there's close ups like, of blood coming out of her mouth that seems super familiar to stuff from porn, except with some other fluid. Uh, Real that, talk. That didn't occur to me, but um, I don't I don't doubt that uh, what you're saying is a, a valid. <laughs> I love how uncomfortable I just made you. No, it's not, it's not, <laughs> I'm not even uncomfortable. It's more like just like I. That's not a. It's not an interpretation that immediately came to my mind. But I don't want. Yeah. I, I want to. In I want the to respect of the movie. Even that was not what I was. Right. Thinking. I, I want to respect yeah, yeah. your well, interpretation without agreeing with it. Does yeah. that make sense? Like, I appreciate I, that. Yeah. That's fair. I, uh, yeah. What I'm saying is that the torture scene specifically, like it's it. It's not enough that she's being tortured. She has to be tortured while bound and naked and wet, and then close-ups of her face. And like, there's just. Even when she's in pain, there's all these like really tight close-ups that are very clearly like re- like it's the kind of stuff you see in porn, and it's just mm-hmm. it's not. I didn't think it was subtle, and it was really driving me crazy because it's like not enough that we have to see her be sexually assaulted. We also have to sexualize her when she's being otherwise assaulted. One of the and also during the sexual assault scenes, not like not only do we first leer at her in her underwear, but then when she gets attacked in the shower, we like leer at her there too. Like, sorry, yeah, all that- of the stuff even in in for lack of a better term, horse school. Is is it kind of doesn't even hold together thematically to me? Like she is trying. There's a sense that she is standing up to power and only doing things her way, but also not at all. And then at a certain point, she tells the headmistress, "I did everything you asked of me," and it's like patently false because we watched her not do all of the things. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah like, she, and she then the headmistress said yes. She yeah, disobeyed Charlotte Rampling at every so. stage. You know, yeah. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. Like how. How that even all holds together is is, the is movie she itself, being defiant? Is she not being defiant? Yeah. Jeff, to what you're saying, the movie itself calls that out, though. Like okay, that's but the, the immediate response. Yeah, like she, when Charlotte Rappling says, like, says, "No, you didn't." Um, yeah, right. But and so then maybe it's like, about how about Jennifer that, Lawrence yeah. is deceiving herself. Right. Yeah. But what am I supposed <laughs> to be thinking there? Is that like right? Is that like oh she? Yeah, the headmistress is right. You were you should have been a more compliant, uh, you know student or right i mean i, I, I don't even understand Jeff's, what the point of that all is i get you what know? Jeff's saying i felt like the whole time they keep pointing out to you that like oh she doesn't listen to anybody and she does what she wants to do and i'm like okay but then why do they keep giving her assignments like i couldn't follow the logic on that <laughs> yeah. even yeah. the even the big nudity scene logically doesn't make any sense the the guy walks in and she says give him what he wants and then she explicitly gives him the one thing he does not want, which is to take away his power. And the headmistress, headmistress is like, cool, good job? Right. Like, I don't understand it, it just, that. It just, I don't it, think she was saying good job in that scene. Like, I, I want to bring up that scene because I thought that was 
kind of well done in terms of how she turned the tables over that situation and that's the entire movie right it's a good scene yeah it's a good scene if that if that uh is showing her like uh pissing off her superiors right if that's what the point of that is um but i think the movie wants i think the movie wants to have it both ways i think the movie teacher didn't like just looking at the movie here guys her teacher was not pleased with that situation no i agree with you on that but i'm saying that the camera is still how like the camera chooses an angle where we're just still like her tit is the center of the screen Mm -hmm. like so it's it's choosing this moment where she's fighting back using her nudity to intimidate this guy i get it but you're using the camera to also but also like her like she's literally asserting her power in that scene, right? 100%. Like do this, yeah, do this thing. I thought you're going to do this thing. Oh, you're not capable of doing this thing. I see. And I thought the way that plays out is like that is inherently interesting. But there's That's also all. a scene in like Showgirls where she toplessly taunts a rapist. It's not really mm-hmm. empowering there either. Yeah, that's uh, I don't know. This movie is very Verhoeven esque. Thank you for bringing up Showgirls, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> because like the yeah, the sexual politics of this movie is it's super fucked up. I'm not I'm not saying I agree with everything going on here, but I I'm not trying to suggest I, you do. Yeah, I'm saying like as a as a story and like a, what they're trying to say here, it is fucked up in a way that I thought is kind of interesting to me. That's all. Yeah, I think uh, you know, Chrissy, you've commented at length about the male gazy aspects of the, the film and how it's exploitative. I, I don't think those things are uh, inherently uh, bad to show in a film so long as there is a broader point being made about mm-hmm. them uh, or sure. a good point being made about them. I, I just think this movie does not make that point. You know, I, don't, I don't think, I think it does a good movie, job of justifying I, those things. I agree. I think this movie also just doesn't understand how women work, like frankly, um, because there's a way. Who does? That, Am I right? <laughs> I mean, there's a way to shoot this movie. Like, I, I keep going back to Atomic Blonde. I really liked Atomic Blonde. I think Atomic Blonde, as Devinder pointed out, is this, like, kind of slow-moving spy thriller that centers on a beautiful woman who does use her body and does use her attractiveness to get what she needs. Um, but I think a big distinction there is that, like, when we see Charlie Theron nude in the film... It is either actively to titillate us or to show us like her bruises. So like nudity is used in two forms there. Nudity is not used the same way in this film. Nudity is typically used to titillate in this film. And then on top of that, like I said, I, I like I agree with Devinder that they are trying to to show like look at her standing up to her rape, her would be rapist and everything. But I think it's undercut by the way the film shoots her and by the way the film frames her and even the clothing that they choose to put her in. Now, the costumes in this film are very much about staring at her body. And I get it because she's a sparrow. She's supposed to be seducing men. I I understand it. But like there could be moments where like she is appealing to a more female gaze and where the clothing she's wearing would be more about like a fashion fantasy moment like Atomic Blonde happens where she's not wearing low cut stuff, but she always looks amazing. Like that doesn't really happen for this. Like she wears that weird one piece bathing suit. I'm just super distracted about how that would move around while she's swimming. (laughs) Can I ask a a slightly different question? When did she ever use her sexuality as a weapon in this movie? Like, we're supposed to bar. believe that. What? Yeah. That guy yeah. that she threatens. She, no, she yeah. threatens okay, the theoretically, it's supposed to be about her, like, seducing Joel Edgerton. Like, that's really what the main but, but, the but movie's supposed to be. Aren't we about, supposed right? to believe that they're, like, legit in love? I mean, are I we, think one I person is much more no in chemistry. love. Yeah. I have no idea the truth of who's in love with who at the end of the film myself right but, but i i feel like he is at, at no point does this movie impugn his 
motives, right? This movie yeah. is he is he is a legit straight shooter American, mm-hmm. and right. and he's a guy she, who thinks with his heart. Right? And like she, he, mm-hmm. we see her decide to have sex with him, and he and and then he turns her down because he's such a good dude, and then she does actually go and have sex with him because we. I think implicitly we're supposed to believe that she respects, likes, and wants to have sex. She wants the sexual pleasure from that person, not to manipulate him, not to use her training, but she mm-hmm. genuinely wants to have sexual pleasure from this guy, right? I don't know. There's like, no like, point like, in this the movie. One, the one goal for her in this whole movie is getting the fuck out <laughs> and saving her mom. That is the goal, right? And everything else is like Brady, like to get there. So mm-hmm. I, I, I honestly can't say if she genuinely like I think she does care for him a little, especially towards the end. But he is like straight up in love with her in a way that's kind of like cute. Um, I, like uh, we're introduced to his character as somebody who acts emotionally because he gets overly invested in his source. And I think mm-hmm. the one thing like we can see from what she's doing is like, OK, we know she can take care of herself. We know she can use information, you know, to protect her and uh, to win you know her advantage because all she wants is to take care of her mother. And then she ends up in this shitty situation where she's, you know, trapped by the government. So she has to get out of that too. So I did not interpret love seems secondary with Joel Edgerton as a manipulative one. I, I, but maybe I, maybe I just missed it. It felt to I, me I, like I think the so- chemistry was so bad between yeah. the two of them that it, you really can't interpret it anyway, in my opinion, yeah. like, right. yeah, but and no she cared point- enough about him to save him, but uh, you're saying love and that's very different. You know, well, I'm saying <laughs> the whole movie, as Christy framed it just now, and I agree that the movie wants wants it this way, is to, that she somehow is using her sexuality as a we- weapon. She's been trained, and now that is her weapon. That's her most dangerous new thing, right? You talk about the the, the moment in the bar. She gets a guy to hit her. That's that's not using your sexuality. That was, that was like provoking somebody into punching you and getting it on camera. Right. Yeah. That, but how'd she do that? I, I'm saying that By there's em- no emasculate, like, you know, taunting, uh, teasing him and then emasculating him. And then that, that's still you know, a way of using it, isn't it? Uh, well, Jeff, I, I think I understand what you're saying, right? Which is that the, the movie's premise, uh, is not fully realized. In, we in, in go through, sure. we go through an inordinate amount of time in this training horse school for no zero payoff unless we're supposed to think that she manipulated Joel Edgerton the whole time which right. I do not think the movie is saying. Yeah, I think you're you're right about that. Um okay, a uh, couple of other things I wanted to mention. Uh first of all, the horse school I thought was pretty uh hilarious just in its uh, execution, like the idea that they train people to do the sexes but mm-hmm. nothing else except like lock picking, and then there's a one <laughs> shot where you see people firing guns at a target, but you never see her train with weapons. So yeah. it's just like, d- dude, there's so many other things you could train someone in that would be more useful. <laughs> um, not sure why they don't do that, you know. Um, so w- wanted to call that out. Uh, you know, uh, Christy, I think you were about to point out that. There were some kind of odd moments in the film where, like, the realism really fell on its face. Uh, well, yeah, the, and I mean, one of them was sorry, when her when she dyed her hair, uh, and I thought to myself, "Huh, like this must like I don't know how hair dyeing works, but uh, when I watched it, I was like, huh, this must be how hair dyeing works.' But it looks really easy, and I didn't. I can't <laughs> imagine that you could just go into a pool right afterwards, but maybe you can because the movie's showing it this way. Uh, and then April Wolf wrote a really great piece just 
dismantling that scene, saying you can't dye your hair using store-bought you know, dye, or you can't bleach it like that using store-bought dye, and do not swim in a chlorinated pool after you do so. Right. Um, Specifically, the things you want to be concerned about that is when you bleach your hair, it's really, really bad for your hair, and it usually takes one or two sittings with a professional. Uh, and so her hair going from brown to like blonde with like a box of hair dye is completely unrealistic. And I know I saw some people on Twitter giving April shit about this and being like, you know, well, that's not a bit important detail. Then don't include it in the movie. Just cut to her being blonde. But you wanted to have some scene where two girls dye their hair together, even though that's absolutely not how any of that works. Like even the way she dyes her hair does not make sense. The is that she does it because he's into blondes. And then like the first thing he's like, hey, it was cool seeing you yesterday when you were a brunette. Right. Like, it was like, oh, it fooled nobody. The way the like, way uh, that I really like how April put it, which is that you could have just cut to her as a blonde. Um, but instead, it's like how a dude imagines it happens. You know, like right. you, you could have just cut to it her just... like having it done professionally afterwards, you know. Um, but instead, it's like, yeah, it's it's kind of and I, she said, like, if you can't trust the makeover, how can you trust any of the spy stuff? But I mean, and, right. Because it's like and I know that might sound silly to people that are like, well, what does the makeover have to do with anything? Because it's such a small detail of like a woman's life. And you're trying to make a movie about this woman who is going through all this stuff. If you can't like figure out the smallest detail. And I saw somebody being like, well, that's not how you pick locks either. And she responded with like, well, 54 percent of the population isn't lock pickers. Yeah. Uh, and it's just really like I know it seems silly. I know it seems like getting caught up on like just nitpicking. But but the point, the grander point of it is that you have a male author, a male screenwriter, a male director who all made this movie about a woman, and the movie doesn't seem to show any sense of how women behave. Let, let me ask you like, this question, Christy. I, I I think if I'm interpreting you correctly, which I think I am, uh, you know the the male gaze aspect of the movie and the exploitative nature of it really bothers you. I I, I totally understand that. Um, it, bo- yeah. it bothers me to varying degrees as well. You know, I'm not unbothered by it. Did you find any other characteristics of the movie to be redeeming in any deg- to any extent? Oh, I love Mary Louise Parker in this movie. <laughs> she is good. She is like good <laughs> in that so drunk scene. A great drunk. Where she comes uh, in for yeah, like her basically short film. And as soon as she exits the movie, I wanted to, I was just like, oh, now it's terrible again. Because, like, (laughs) I, aside from all the problems I have with the, like, the, you know, gender politics of this film, I think it's boring. Uh, Mm. There isn't very good action. Jennifer Lawrence, I don't know what she's doing. I think she can be incredibly charismatic. I don't know what she's doing here. She's trying to be Russian. And in being Russian, she decides Russian means monotone. And she does an accent that is, like, almost as good as that one and i know that wasn't good so bear with that like it's all over the place that's a pretty good jennifer lawrence impression christy i have to say thank you i've been practicing um but it's just it's like it's not a good performance it's a dull long slog of a movie i like i hated this uh i did like mary louise parker i i thought it was hilarious that they used um floppy disks which i thought was a ludicrous idea but then apparently mike ryan spoke with francis lawrence and uh they actually do use floppy disks at the dod Mm -hmm. like they want the disks to contain as little information as possible and be as difficult to transport as possible which Um, is it's kind of smart yeah yeah yeah, i guess there's there's little bits of that like i don't know anything about hair coloring um but those like something like that and i think like uh, some of the glimpses of spycraft that we get uh, were kind of intriguing to me. I do agree, though. Like this movie, if it were, could it could be shorter? Could be so much there, shorter and so much tighter because of it. But there is that thing that I kind of mentioned earlier about the end 
making me go, oh, was I watching this clockwork piece uh-huh. of spy <laughs> movie all putting the blank pieces in, in place for me? And boy, but it, it does not it does not even ask any questions that would lead you to be thinking about that the right. whole time. Right. Like it comes, out, like of, it comes out of nowhere. From, like the that ending, was yeah. the plan yeah. from the beginning is what I'm gathering. It's like that is what we're scraping together because everything is fucked at the end. Yeah, no, I get it. And I and that was like, oh, was this actually a good movie the whole time? Like she <laughs> clearly was set out to do this from day one and it was all this master plan. And wow, this was this movie like this very intricate puzzle that I would but it doesn't present itself like a puzzle and so it's hard for me to give it credit for mm-hmm. having a voila at the end if there's no setup for the magic trick you can't just say voila at the end and have me be a mystified because it's like oh oh I was watching a trick oh <laughs> right you know well I also found the end to be really predictable because uh, when they reveal the mold, there aren't that many characters. <laughs> right. It could like, be one of like four dudes in the movie. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, and it's probably like, going to be that big movie star dude that really had very little role in the movie. <laughs> right. Like, oh, he, like, oh, he's only spoken three lines. I have a theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's Jeremy Irons, everybody. Ladies mm. and gentlemen, Jeremy Irons. Mm. Yeah. I just... Ugh, I don't know. I just it bummed me out. Like I like I like a spy movie, and like I I agree with Devinder. There were points that I was like I thought the spycraft stuff was interesting. I didn't think about the floppy disks, um, but that is an interesting point. But that's kind of what I'm saying about like how can you figure out those things, but then like you have the hair dye scene, you have these scenes that just don't show any concept of like putting her in a world that makes sense to women because this isn't a movie that's actually made for women. And I'm not saying that men can't make movies like that because I think that there are men who make incredible movies about women. I think Ridley Scott does that. I think, uh, I'm, I'm so tired. The director of Carol, Todd Haynes. Todd Haynes, yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that there are plenty of filmmakers who can do that, who are male. I, I just think that this is really troubling. I also find it really troubling because Lauren, Francis Lawrence made three movies with her where she did action and where he was able to shoot her in a way where she looked physically competent and didn't have to be like objected, like objectified. And then he makes this and it's just like, it made me feel skeeved out. Like that whole time he was like, Oh man, just wait though. I'm going to get that top offer and it's going to be amazing. Okay. Well on that note, um, (laughs) I think we can wrap up uh, our review. <laughs> um, not Red Sparrow, not a great film. Not a great film. Um, anyway, stay tuned. We'll be discussing next week. Find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, and you can find our theme song at adamwarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. In the meantime, Christy Puchka, where can I find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, I write all over the place, but I write every day at pajiba.com. You can find career highlights at decadentcriminals.com. Uh, I'm going to be heading to South by Southwest this week, so you can follow along on Twitter at Christy Puchko, K-R-I-S-T-Y-P-U-C-H-K-O, and I'll be putting up a bunch of stuff for sci-fi fangirls. How about you, Devendra? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra, and I write about techadentgadget.com. Jeff Kanata. I'm at Jeff Kanata on Twitter. That's with two N's and one T. And you can hear me talk about video games on a show called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. And I do a comedy science show that's called We Have Concerns. And you can find that at wehaveconcerns.com. Find my stuff at davechen.net. I also uh, just posted a review of the Anchor uh, Nebula Capsule Projector uh, over at SlashFilm.com. Check that out if you have a chance. Next week, we'll be discussing A Wrinkle in Time, the newest film by Ava DuVernay. So uh, looking forward to that. Thanks for tuning in to the SlashFilmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. 
We'll see you guys later. love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by march 31st to get a hundred dollars back instantly because no matter what moves you made last year TurboTax makes them count that means getting 100 back and 100 accurate taxes only from intuit TurboTax. must file by 331 credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service offer can be modified or terminated at any time 